0: Hey, Hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jim Cummings, an actor and filmmaker who's created a remarkable niche for himself in the last few years with his feature films Thunder Road and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, in which he plays overmatched authority figures who insist on pretending they're in control when their world is falling apart around them. Jim and his writing partner, PJ McCabe, take that character one step further in their brand new movie The Beta Test, which casts Jim as Jordan, a Hollywood agent spiraling into paranoia once he's tempted by the promise of a no-string sexual encounter. It's just come out on VOD, and it's great. You need to see it. Jim picked Zodiac, David Fincher's 2007 thriller focusing on the hunt for the serial killer who terrorized San Francisco in the late 1960s and early 70s, murdering at least five people and claiming to have killed dozens more. Fincher's narrative is framed through the eyes of three men whose lives are swallowed up by the investigation. Journalist Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., police inspector Dave Tosky, played by Mark Ruffalo, and cartoonist Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. But Fincher and his screenwriter James Vanderbilt make sure there's a fourth investigator as well. It's the camera, pulling us further and further into darkness. That's where the story is. This is someone else's movie. I
1: think Zodiac is a masterpiece uh and i think it is one of the most forensic meticulously made uh narratives that falls into the detective genre but it's so much larger than that like that case of serial murder was a 30-year case uh and if you're gonna make a movie about a case that was that long of course it has to be three hours and it is so interesting to watch. It is so perfectly done, and all of the detective story in any research uh, about the case is purposeful and so beautifully entwined cinematically to uh, this film. And I think it it does a few things for me. Obviously, the craftsmanship of the cinema is, uh, you know, beyond par. It is like one of the most perfect movies ever made, in my opinion, and Bong Joon-ho's opinion. Um, I think really also it touches the surface of how um, fragile life is and how um, we take for granted how dangerous our neighbors can be and that there are very scary people out there that aren't Michael Myers, that are Um, a guy that works at an Ace Hardware who, when you show up, looks you in the face and recognizes you even though he shouldn't because you're just a cartoonist at a newspaper. And that's a dead giveaway that he's probably the guy who's been killing these people in the Bay Area. Um, It's a chilling masterpiece and I love it more than most movies. That's why I
0: picked it. And it gives me the opportunity to come out and say, the first time I saw it, I wasn't that crazy about it. I I thought it was absorbing and well done, but it felt to me like, I don't know, this is such a weird thing to feel when you see a movie, but when it was over, I thought, you know, I think you should have waited another couple of years. It felt like Mm. it was like, but, but then I realized later, and it took a while and, and, you know, in a weird way, I like, it's one of the few films where I feel like I failed it you should have waited a couple of years yeah or that it but the point of the film is that it's about the time that passes and how there'll never be enough time and how there is no resolution and i i have gone back to it a number of times since then and i don't know that i've ever been lulled into that headspace by a movie the same way where it actually convinced me that i was misreading it because the whole point of the film is about how you misread how people misread things It is funny. So I'll
1: completely admit to that. I've been a terrible film student. um, And it's there have been times where I've like, I watched The Godfather the first time um, and was like impressed with the fun Italian wedding stuff. And then I didn't really get the whole point of it. And then um, it took me watching No Country for Old Men a thousand times to then really go back and watch The Godfather and fall in love with it for its language. It's like speaking a different language um, and learning learning a language really of of what the filmmaker's trying to say um, and the relationship between the audience and the filmmaker. Um, And Zodiac is like the pinnacle of that for me, of this dude, David, who lived in the Bay Area until he was about seven and then came back to work at Industrial Light & Magic Um, when he was leaving the Bay area was looking out the back window and said, I wonder if ever they caught that guy. I wonder if uh, they ever caught that Zodiac guy. Um, And so even for him, it was this unsolved mystery as a child and then became so fascinated with serial murder. He's made, you know, TV shows and movies about it. Almost all of his films basically. And um, I just, I completely fall in line. I like, uh, it's so fascinating. It's, it is like, document, it's like a werewolf film where it's like, there are these people among us who every once in a while go out of their way to harm their neighbors for their own sexual satisfaction or their own ego satisfaction. And it is so antithesis of what every other human being feels that it's shocking to the human spirit, I think. Um, and, uh, And it's just, it's so profound to watch and horrifying. Uh, the Lake Essa murder is just so wild and um, and graphic and ugly and true. That's how it happened, um, probably. Yeah. So I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. I think like it, it's interesting that one of the best cinema artists of all time makes films about these guys who hold women down with knives and kills them and it's unfortunate you know it's nice to have filmmakers who are making much more peaceful kind films but it is fascinating to watch david work
0: yeah he has a a clear eye in exactly every way right like he he from that from that shot of the car traveling through san francisco which you know it's so simple right it's a panaglide but uh, and a crane, I think, at the time, because it wouldn't have been a drone. Now it's a drone shot and it's everywhere, but... That's that's actually
1: all CG. The 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 car driving through San Francisco is entirely... That's right, uh, because, they had to, because they had to recreate the, the city as it was. Yes, and also the movements weren't perfect enough for Dave uh, in thinking about how you do it with a drone. And so the car, it seems as though the camera is strapped to the car, you know, 200 feet up or whatever. And um, it's also... Uh, a supposition of what, why he killed the taxi driver, because it's against his modus operandi um, and signature. He left, uh, he took a bit of the guy's clothes. It was definitely a Zodiac murder um, and sent it to the Chronicle, but they're, they're thinking that he was being talked negatively about on the radio and then shot the guy, which is such a clever thing. I never would have thought of that. It would take the writers uh, thinking about it for years to go, well, that's probably why he did it.
0: Yeah. And that's the other thing that's so fascinating too, uh, in the absence of personal detail, like the film has to invent the Zodiac. I mean, I'm pretty sure the film wants it to be Arthur Lee Allen. It's him. Like that's, that's where the story it's takes him. It. There's no question. It's Arthur Lee Allen. There's no question.
1: And not just that the, the amount of you know, I mean, he says it at the end of the film. He's like, "This is a case that's that goes over several different parts, like a million different um, counties in California, from Norcal to SoCal. Like, it, the guy has been killing people um, for a long time. It's incredibly rare for one of the lead suspects with all of these different pieces of evidence that tie him close to uh, the victims and where they were at the time." Uh, would live 50 feet from the first victim. And then also the movie doesn't go into it, but that wasn't the first victim. So John Douglas's book, um, The Cases That Haunt Us, goes into even more detail about Zodiac. It's a beautiful book. It has different coverage of different, like Jack the Ripper and stuff like that. It's fascinating. But there was a murder that took place on a college campus um, where a woman was murdered on the football field And then somebody scribbled something uh, and left it or sent a letter to the newspaper, I think. I might be getting that wrong, but I think that's right. And Arthur Lee Allen went to that college and was a student then. And then also he he got a speeding ticket Uh, coming back from Lake Berryessa to his trailer park the night of the Lake Berryessa murder. And it's like, well, of course he was speeding. He had to go and kill people far away and then get home as quick as possible. And it's like, there's just way too many things that connect this guy to this place. And although there aren't fingerprints and there aren't handwriting things that connect him or DNA, it's, it's an amazing thing to do behavioral psychology and say, without a doubt, It is this person and there's just no, there's, there's nobody else. It had to be this guy.
0: Oh yeah. No, I, I, I don't doubt that the film thinks it's him. Like that's the reason we get the final scene. And I, I I remember when, when Memento came out and people were insisting that it, that the ending as the film is structured isn't a validation of teddy's story it's like well no teddy's just lying to him it's like no it's at the end of the movie it is telling you what the yeah. film feels that's the fulfillment that's like yeah that that is
1: the 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 artist being like this is the the payoff that you've been waiting for yeah 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 the, the other thing about that last scene in zodiac um in the airport where they bring in the dude who gets shot uh who, that actor's so good too jimmy simpson yeah that's right future westworld star that's right. That's right. Um, and he gets brought in and he says that bit where he's like, yeah, that's him. That's probably him. I'm like 85% sure. And then he picks it up and looks at it and says that line of like, um, I haven't seen this man's face since that night, basically. And it's this beautiful, and he goes, I am I am certain that this is the guy that shot me. It's a beautiful ending of the film. But the guy, the detective who's taking the notes, who hands out the photographs is the detective who was working at, um, I want to say the Vallejo police station um, where Jake Gyllenhaal can't take notes in the uh, in the room, in the evidence room, and so he comes running out to run across the street to go to the diner and take the notes, and somebody goes, uh, uh, he, go, he goes, who's that? And he goes, oh, it's Robert Graysmith. He's a reporter for The Chronicle. He's trying to solve Zodiac. And the guy goes, good for him. And it's this punchline, <laughs> and then that's the guy who gets the testimony at the end of the film. Like, the punchline in the middle of the movie is actually the most, piece, most beautiful piece of evidence, and that is how most cases get solved. It's never... This like one dude who goes out and solves the case. It's never the film noir version. It's this team of like incompetent people from a thousand different counties that then it takes investigative journalists to piece it all together as to how the whole thing happened. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's was it the early 80s? Like the sort of the rudimentary, the facts-based version of the internet that the FBI used to just figure out where things were happening in multiple cities to suddenly understand patterns and, and stuff that had just not been possible to see because we yeah. didn't have that level of inter-office communication.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, um, behavioral sciences division of the FBI, I mean, started in the 1970s. Yeah. yeah, John Douglas was like one of the lead guys. And obviously he's, that's what Mindhunter is based off of his book. And then, um, Bill Tench is not a real person, but he did have a partner to go and interview, um, you know, all these serial killers. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, really, there was no way to track this stuff. And it was this, not an epidemic, but this thing that you could track as, Uh, as easily or as simply as hurricanes, where it's like within a certain population, when the economy starts to go down, these certain types of men get triggered and then uh, end up killing people, usually women. Um, And it's so graphic and so awful. I think that Mindhunter season two is probably the best piece of media ever made. Um, Certainly the most well-crafted. And I think there's no way that he could have made it he and his team could have made it without having done Zodiac as forensically as possible. But um yeah, it is just, it, it's impossible and difficult to think about. Like I read John Douglas's book about BTK and we all know him as Dennis Rader and we see his picture and it's like, oh yeah, it's definitely him. But think about tracking that fucker for 30 years and all you have are crime scenes. All you have are the things that are left behind in this brutal you know, masturbatory rape murder uh, situation. It's really graphic and awful. And these detectives are kind of, you know, stuck with their hands in their pockets of like, well, I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to solve this thing? It's really shocking that we're able to get anything um, at all. We're very lucky that DNA evidence and 23andMe are doing a good job putting these people
0: behind bars. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the film to just to keep bringing it bouncing back to Zodiac, even though we could go off in, into Mindhunter or, or seven or any of the other places that Girl, the dragon you're, tattoo and Yeah, you're in. right. He's never really like, even panic room is about a guy who ultimately will be a serial killer. If he's not stopped in the, the yeah. character. Oh, nobody, great, man. Nobody Fucking, talks about panic room. I love that
1: movie so much. Even David, um, the first time I met Dave, I uh, we were at this house in New Orleans as a production assistant on Benjamin Button. And, uh, and he was showing me clips from Zodiac and he was showing me clips from Benjamin Button on his laptop. Uh, it was the first time I ever saw a, uh, a one terabyte drive. Um, <laughs> and I, I said, you know, Panic Room is one of my favorite movies. I watch it all the time. And he goes, oh, that fucking movie. And I'm like, how does, it's crazy. Like you're never satisfied. That movie is one of the most concise and like perfect films to make. Um, and it's just it's shocking that even the filmmakers are like, oh, I, I can only think about the problems that I was having on set. I cannot separate that struggle from um, the movie itself. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. I had a conversation with Soderbergh in like, I want to say 2000. And it's when Che came out. So 2008. And we were talking about the first four films, which he's basically, even Sex Lies, he doesn't like to talk about them. He doesn't like to revisit them. And he, he basically, I was asking if we were ever going to get a decent dvd i think of king of the hill and he's like yeah. uh you know i don't have time for it and that and the underneath and he just keeps shit talking his early films and kafka and now he's gone back and revisited all of them and yet Fincher still like there's no blu-ray of panic room anywhere in the world it's yeah. very frustrating it's also weird side anecdote it was the first movie i saw in a theater with my wife my future wife yeah we yeah. saw it on a date together almost 20 years i watch ago. it i watch it with my mom all through high school because ah. it's just it's so terrifying i mean it's
1: like Uh, And then I think like the thing for him, maybe this is what I gleaned from the conversation was that it was too much like Cape Fear and that it spoke too panderingly or it worked too panderingly to white America. That it was like home intrusion movies are just too much speaking to white women and making them scared. And that's an easy audience to hit basically. and, yeah, and so like, but, but I mean, it's kind of true, but I mean, I, but it's, it's a masterpiece. It's probably the best of the genre in a crazy way and elevates the genre in so many different ways. David Cope's writing is unbelievable. The scene with the Coca-Cola and the pizza with almost no dialogues, my favorite scenes in any movie. I always cite that to like feature screenwriters to be like, oh yeah, you can, you can make movies like this. You don't have to say too much. Um, Yeah. It's funny. We're like, and that's that one is is so contained and focused entirely on performance. It's a I fucking love that guy. David Fincher is so talented. It's just it's insane. It's like God tier filmmaking. And I don't know why that kind of craftsmanship is absent from
0: the majority of other films that I see. I think the monomaniacal insistence on getting it right, like there are not a lot of directors who <laughs> are willing to push the way that Fincher does. Yeah. And you're making a face that tells me, Oh my God, dude, he's my favorite. Uh,
1: but he doesn't do many interviews, but when he does, he's always talking about that of like, people make fun of me because I'll do a hundred takes of a scene. And then he goes like with all of the other work that goes into this stuff, all of the entire team that builds the sets, that does the wardrobes, that shows up at five in the morning, that locks down the street, that does all this stuff. And I'm nervous that some celebrity isn't going to get enough sleep that night or that they're hungover. Is It's like, I gotta, (laughs) like, I'm not going to cut around your hangover. Like we gotta, we gotta make the scene. You gotta do your job. Do your job, you know. Um, and it's really funny to hear him talk like unflinchingly about um, about doing movies like that. And uh, it's really funny. He he actually lambasted Jake Gyllenhaal um, when. So Jake Gyllenhaal was also coming out with Jarhead when they were shooting Zodiac, right. and and uh, he he has this interview. I think it's for GQ, but he says like Jake was um, on the. On like the precipice of getting nominated for best actor for Jarhead. And so all of his managers and agents were trying to like puff him up to be like, Oh, we got to do this press tour for this movie. And he's like, No, you're the main character of Zodiac. You got to focus on this thing. And then Jake had to apologize to David, be like, I don't know what I was thinking. I got sucked up in this Hollywood bullshit. Let's make this movie as perfect as possible. I think he's great in the movie. I think he's like one of my favorite characters in cinema.
0: Is wonderful. And and that's what I mean about Fincher. It's like, if there are a hundred takes of Jake Gyllenhaal looking at a piece of paper, I want to see them. I want to see, I want to see all the takes of of Downey at the Bar. I want to see all the little variations, all the little little moments. I want to understand why he picked the takes that made it into the movie, because there is like, that's what I mean. He moves with purpose. His films are sharks. They have like, yep, that's exactly right. He finds a single direction out of all of this possibility that he creates in the first place, which it's, we uh, we just did an episode on, on Secrets and Lies, I think last week actually is when it will have come out. And, you know, Mike Lee's process is that he improvises with his actors for six months, then writes the script based on what they give him and, fi- and finds wow. the way through, right? Like the perfect narrative. Fincher does it on the set. Fincher does it in previs and in post. He, and I assume he labors over the scripts with his writers just as much, but by the time the printed page is ready, that's like, you know, Hitchcock used to say that once he, he storyboard, he, he wrote and storyboarded a film, it was over. He would get bored during the shoots because he knew what was going to happen. And it, yep. there was no surprise. He, you just have to execute the
1: thing. I, I'm not surprised by that. It's funny. Even watching something like Jamaica in it's so edited before they shot it. So like, and obviously Charles Lawton's a director as well and a great comic actor and he's playing the bad guy in the movie, but like the, the camera's based off of his biology, they just kind of like float around with this guy knowing that he's gonna be this bombastic, um, goofy villain. Um, and it's so edited. All of his films are even in the 1930s are incredibly edited before they shoot. And I just, I haven't seen that kind of craftsmanship. It's almost absent from modern independent filmmaking or filmmaking in general, where it's like, oh, we'll set up some shots and we'll find it on the day. And my kind of filmmaking, the way that we make movies is we we write the script out loud so that it's like organic coming out of human vocal cords, kind of stealing that from Mike Lee. And then uh, we do a podcast of it just like this and I'll play all of the parts and put in music and sound design so that the movie is kind of done in audio format and everybody understands where the punchlines are and how long the awkward pauses should be. I always say like English and language and comedy are so complex that an actor reading a script might completely miss the point. And we don't have the kind of budget or the time to show up on set with people not getting it. Um, So it becomes this great base layer so that when we all show up on set, we know what we're doing and we can kind of speak the language of the movie more so than just reading the script will allow. Um, I think that kind of filmmaking is very important. And I suggest doing it like that. I mean, Bong Joon-ho storyboarded all of Parasite. like. And then people are like, "Well, how you know you're line reading for your actors and doing these podcasts?" And it's like, "Well, you're telling them where to stand and what clothes to wear, and like it's their job to elevate it. It's their job to make it seem natural." But um, yeah, there's almost very there's very little freedom that we have on our sets. David gives his actors an incredible amount of freedom by doing hours and hours of rehearsal and finding the thing.
0: It's crazy. Yeah, I had no idea you did the audio thing. That's that's such a fascinating because it's the opposite of previous. Yeah, like it's, it's pre sound, it's pre rhythm. I, I get it. I totally understand It's the cheapest the-
1: way I know how to do it. Like I know how to do podcasts. I I'm a terrible artist. I'm a terrible drawer. Um, I, I'm a terrible filmmaker, but like, I'm a good editor. And so I know like if I can record it on the voice memo app on my phone um, and like do it in a closet and I can play all the parts, I can realize where the script sucks and where it needs to uh, be shortened or, you know, two scenes combined or something in a way that just by reading it in my mind's eye on a, on a laptop and a screenplay format is not the same. And doing it out loud um, can tell you when the audience is going to get bored so much, so much quicker and so much easier. And so we've done it for all three of my features. And I think that's kind of the only reason why it feels so crafted, our
0: movies. That's amazing. Do you, do you ever discover new lines or new new angles oh, yeah. when you? Oh do yeah, that? and then when we act, we we write the script out loud. So it's like me
1: and PJ right. acting out every scene, or me in the basement, uh, PJ's basement, drinking Budweiser, doing the Thunder Road scenes, pretending to be a nine-year-old girl, and like having a conversation with myself as the dad. It's insane. Um, it's really goofy to hear too. But um, yeah, when you're doing it out loud, you can find by accident through improv turns of phrase or just simplicity or like a facial expression that will get across the idea in a way that if you're going to do a lot of screenwriting, it can become very verbose and you're trying to get these ideas across. And sometimes it's much better to just be
0: subtle. Yeah, because I mean, I can think of the, the, way you're, the way your face flickers in the beta test at numerous points, but especially at the very beginning with a little card where the only words that we can really <laughs> see are face sitting. I laughed so hard and okay. it is such an unexpected little sting in that moment of just like the the some the fact what is it like two seconds where you filter through desire, uh attraction and guilt. Yeah. Like just that's immediately. Right. And the way that and the way that Jordan is constantly exploding and apologizing at people. Yeah. Even though he I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> he knows he's in the wrong. Yeah,
1: and the facade of like I'm a tough guy, and then uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to shout. It. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm violent. Uh, yeah, no. It's it's very important. I think that's like one of the strengths that we have is that we have 24-hour access as screenwriters to the lead actor, and so like I'm <laughs> able to to make the scenes function. So like when. Um, when Jacqueline, uh, no spoilers, but Jacqueline comes into my office, she's my assistant, and the scene is going a certain way. It seems a bit flirtatious. It seems like it's going to be this kind of Weinstein power dynamic between a female assistant and the male boss. Mm -hmm. Um, And then halfway through the scene, uh, she says something that makes it sound like she understands that I'm having an affair and is reading my mail. And she does it kind of covertly, and it, it completely changes the, the, the scene. And the audience is like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. She asks if, uh, you're in a good mood, did your wife sit on your face this morning? And she would only know that if she had read my mail, um, which is yeah. really funny and terrifying and speaks to the larger problem in Hollywood of, or the larger great thing in Hollywood of the powers that be not having power anymore and the assistants finally having power, which is important. Yeah. Um, but uh, to do that in that sequence, all it takes is me squinting my eyes a bit and like my eyebrows are so big and dark that it changes the entire emotion of my face. I have this kind of like elastic face that can convey, you know, many different emotions. So when she leaves the room, I just kind of squint a bit. And then the audience is like, Oh, he's thinking about that. And it's funny. And it like, you can hold at the end of a scene of just watching someone think about something. um, And it's funny. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the momentum carries us through it, right? Like we're watching to see what will happen next. And if all he's doing is going into his brain for a second, then yeah. that, that breaks the tension and it's really you, fun. Yeah,
1: you get to see the cogs working a bit. One of my favorite um, comic actors is Steve Coogan and he plays a character called Alan Partridge. Oh yeah. And it's amazing to watch him work. I mean, all the comedy is so forensic. That's what he calls it, forensic comedy. Um, but it's so perfect the way he's able to say something with only a few words is such amazing Word economy with that writing, um, but it's it tells an entire story. One of my favorite jokes uh, is in Alan Partridge Alpha Papa, where the kidnapper, the guy who is holding everybody hostage, uh Pat Farrell has his shotgun and uh he's kind of the sad guy and he lost his wife. Um, and he and he goes, uh he goes, Yeah, this is my wife. Um, here's a photograph of her. This was uh, three months before the angels carried her to heaven. And you never see the photograph, but he holds it up. And Alan goes, must've been a couple of them. Yeah. And hands out. And it's amazing. It's just the bit, like, it's a fat joke, but it's just... It, it, it paints a picture in the audience's mind, and you don't need to see the picture. It's yeah. just this. It's that it, you have to. You're forced to become a detective, and that's so much more fulfilling in comedy. Of like making the audience, the people that have to understand the innuendo um, on their own. It's really fun.
0: Well, the beta test does have a mystery. And we're sort of encouraged to ride along while it's explored, but the, oh yeah, I don't even want to talk about this because it'll blow the the experience for the audience, but the sense of menace that gathers around it. It
1: is uh, purposeful. Like Zodiac starts with this very graphic murder um, in a car and it's cool and scary and sets the tone for the rest of the movie while also keeping the audience on their toes a bit where they know more of these are coming and it might be coming for the main characters and so it kind of creates this um ticking clock a bit it's a the touch of evil opening where it's like a guy plants a bomb in a trunk and then the audience is tense for the next five minutes until it goes off um yeah i mean we're stealing that kind of from the tapestry of cinema and like where that's worked before but um yeah, it was a lot of fun to shoot that scene. It's like, I, I don't act in it. It's one of the only scenes in the movie where like PJ and I just got to pretend to be David Fincher for a night. It was great.
0: And Zodiac is, again, same Count thing, blood. right? No
1: blood yeah. at all. Yeah, the um, the Baryessa stabbings is a fake knife. I think it's probably the same thing. Probably had a hilt and then a synthetic knife. I mean, they probably have a higher VFX budget for those movies than, than we do. <laughs> but yeah, the majority of the blood in that is fake. Um, and I forget why. There was oh, a good reason. Oh, you said you
0: didn't want to bother with costume changes. That's like it's what it's it was. That simple that he knew he was going to do multiple takes and he just didn't want to have to clean everybody up every time. Wow. And that was 2007 and he yeah. still made
1: it look incredible. I had no idea there was no fake blood. Yeah, it's incredible what you can do. And that's why it's so tragic um, with the Rust shooting of like, why the fuck did they have bullets on set? Like why it takes you know, 30 seconds. I did the gunshots in the beta test. It's a fake gun. And then all it took was me doing a couple of muzzle flashes and then sound effects for the gun. Um, and then on Wolf is no hollow on all of our films, it's, it's like pellet guns. It's not, it's not, it's a, it's crazy. And I hope that the industry changes to finally appreciate this safety net that we have that are VFX artists.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's, um, no, it's just, it's watching all the, watching the speculation roll out and, and the, like the news cycle yeah. needing to be fed. That's like, think- it's so awful too. And it's like all the conspiracy
1: theory stuff. And then like the armorers, defense attorneys who are doing their job of, you know, replacing blame and misleading and all that stuff, which is normal for defense attorneys, that's their fucking job. Hmm. Um, but then you see people sharing it on social media and it's like, I have this line in uh, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, my second movie, where I I say, uh, hey, Dean, you got to get your wife to stop posting that shit on Facebook. Uh, She doesn't know what she's talking about. She has none of the evidence. She's trying to be a digital sleuth and she's an idiot. And it's like so often I want to say that when I see these things pop up in the media, it's like this is a crime scene is a very complicated crime scene. You're not gonna nail it for clickbait. You're not gonna get it right, right now. You have almost none of the evidence. And um, truth is almost always stranger than fiction. And, you know, information will come out in the next five months during the trial, I'm sure. And then everybody will be like, oh, finally, now I know what happened instead of reading the Salon article about, you know, problems with film sets and Alec Baldwin or whatever, it's awful.
0: Yeah. Which actually brings us back to Graysmith in a bizarre way. Like here is a guy who had none of that. He didn't have the training. He didn't have the resources. He had some access, but not enough. He just liked puzzles and he wouldn't stop. Yeah. It's
1: interesting when you catch the bug, especially with serial murder where it's like the ultimate whodunit and there are clear answers, you know, they're not, (laughs) these people aren't trying to solve like, you know, DuPont chemical and how Teflon got renamed and they're still poisoning people. It's never that. It's like, how do we find the the wolf? How do we find this person who's harming people in our neighborhood? Um, And there is great satisfaction when you bring any of these people down. Um, But yeah, I mean, Robert was such a weird guy. He was just like this goofy, yeah, goofy dude who loved puzzles, had no business um, solving a you know a federal federal crime, but um, it sometimes takes someone with a non-overlapping skill set to come in and shake things loose. And I mean that's kind of what the Innocence Project does now, where it's people who are retired with spare time. You know, the, the people that cracked the code was a retired couple. Um, the Zodiac ciphers and yeah. found out the language. They were just. People like it, it kind of takes a village, um, in some circumstances, and that, that's one of the things that I love so much about this movie. It goes into detail about that, where like cops, for the most part, are incompetent, they got into it because they like you know the these these hero figures like Batman or um, well, these days it's the Punisher, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which is sort it of comes a misreading, across. but yeah, yeah, um. So yeah, I mean, it's funny though when I when I was interviewing cops for Thunder Road, uh, they would say, "Hey, you're the movie man, huh? Okay, cool. You're the movie man. What kind of movies you like?" And I was like, "Oh, like Terrence Malick movies and Alfonso Cuarón. What kind of movies do you like?" And they would go, "Man, you put me on the spot. Uh, Fast and Furious, uh, Batman, uh, Avengers." And there was always like these movies with these heroic people that drove cars very fast. Um, And uh, yeah, it's it's funny with the the majority of these people are not uh, very well set to solve a crime like this.
0: Yeah, and they, well, I'm sorry. My brain is still screaming that I have to make the connection like, Mark Ruffalo played that guy in the Dark Waters movie about the Teflon. He's in this too. It all comes back to Zodiac. And the absurdity too of, of, what is this? A movie where Iron Man, the Hulk and Mysterio work to catch a serial killer. (laughs)
1: I completely
0: forgot my God, the cinematic universe. That's really funny. It hit me about halfway through the last time I watched it. It's just like, Oh, of course they're all everywhere. They're like, and that's but, what yeah. Marvel does. It just absorbs actors. But yeah. And- but I think, I think that's the beauty of, of
1: David too, of like kidnapping Brad Pitt for a minute and making movies with him where he's like the biggest star in the world, but then they have the same sense of humor and like, they're like, cool, we're going to make this movie. It'll be a beautiful love letter to my dad, uh, and it'll, we'll call it Benjamin Button and mortality. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, with Seven, it's like he plays such the comic relief moron, uh, brute, who ends up uh, fulfilling the prophecy that the bad guy wants. Um, yeah, I, I think like that is why David is so good. He turns celebrities into normal people and turns normal people into celebrities. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. I mean, certainly he saw something in John Carroll Lynch that no one else ever had. He also kind of looks like Arthur Lee Allen. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the interviews with Arthur. There's interviews on YouTube where some local newscaster went and interviewed him in his home. And uh, I think there's two interviews with Arthur Lee Allen while he was still alive. And they're pretty shocking. He seems incredibly pedestrian. And he's like, yeah, I've been accused of this thing. And like, it's difficult for me to live in this neighborhood. And it's like him walking around in his backyard. And the whole time, it's like, it's that shtick that a serial killer pulls off of like, I'm going to engage with the press. And then I'm going to go home. The telltale heart thing of like really Hmm. loving this ego trip that he's convincing people that he's not this person and playing the victim. It's wild.
0: No, I haven't seen them. I'm a little nervous too. Now <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've seen them all. I've seen it's bad. I've seen like every serial killer interview because we we're researching the Wolf of Snow Hollow and it's about serial murder in America. And so I read all of John Douglas's books and I watched all these interrogation videos of like, you know, Colonel Russell Williams in Canada and just how these dudes perform and who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really Hypnotizing. I feel a bit like Gray Smith a bit when I was researching that stuff. Of like, I knew all of the details, all the gory stuff, and it goes beyond, you know, like a macabre desire or like an interest. It's like you have to know everything. You have to understand how this thing works because it's so foreign to how we think about our lives, and it can often remind us of how lucky we have it, not being around these people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit older, and I I, I got on the John Douglas train. Right after Red Dragon was published, and, and it came out that he was the inspiration for Will Graham, even though but, you know Thomas Harris took massive, massive liberties with his story. But the Elliot Layton's hunting humans had come out around the same time. I was in, I think I was in university, so it would have been the late '80s that that was around. And it is incredibly compelling reading, right? Like the idea of a completely aberrant psychology that you cannot connect to in any way that doesn't see other humans as humans. Um, You must've read Tim Cahill's book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was the first time I'd I'd experienced it as narrative in a way. Like he he really gives voice to everything. And, and I, I feel like now what we're seeing is the fascination in a whole new generation, not, not Fincher, obviously he's, he's, I think a couple of years older than me, but the audience for these shows suddenly true crime is everywhere because it's, It's sort of seductive and relatable. And um, Michaela Watkins had this great line on the unicorn, just throwing out of nowhere. It's like, why do women listen to true crime? Uh, It's just what we do. And Uh, I've also seen it posited that it's it's instructive in a horrible way, right? Like you're learning how not to get caught.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So with women, like Hitchcock talked about that a lot. And there's scenes in like the opening of Frenzy um, and in uh, Strangers on a Train, uh, where like you see women interacting with the macabre and like how scary killers are. And isn't that interesting is this kind of light society stuff, um, uh, a fascination. And um and he, it's funny that he's doing it where he's like, these, these people are coming about it in such, uh, they seem like simpletons. They seem like they don't really understand how graphic and awful the thing that they're interested in is. That's so why I really love the ending of Mindhunter season one when he's uh, hanging out with, uh, he goes to the hospital and, um, and visits, what's his face? The tall guy, I'm spacing on his name, Ed Kemper. Oh, um, right, right, right. Uh, Edmund Kemper. And uh, and the the officer leaves and he's alone in the room with him. And then he stands up to his full height and then kind of corners him. And he's like, oh, he's going to kill me. This is it. And like the, the whole time we've kind of been lulled into this um, calm state that uh, dealing with serial killers is a safe matter or that um, getting interested in the subject is safe and it's not true. And as soon as you really uh, become close to the matter, it's incredibly graphic and ugly and not fun and mm. not cool. And uh, I'm very glad I stopped working on the Wolf of Snow Hollow when I did because um, I, I got, I got a little too close to the precipice and um and I don't know
0: if I'll I'll engage
1: with the material again.
0: Yeah, I think the attraction on one level is that someone is dead and you can get answers. Justice pornography. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing that everyone forgets is that in almost all of these unsolved murders, the implication is that the killer is still alive. So you're not safe. No one is safe investigating these things like psychologically, because if the point yeah. is the fascination with the unknown, the unknown is waiting for you to come to look at magazines yeah. in your basement, the way Fleischer right. Has right. that right, moment. right, even though he's not the Zodiac. Yeah. We are allowed to be just as freaked out as Graysmith is in that basement scene, which is just so I, I remember yeah. seeing that with an audience the first time and watching people, you know, the story about, um, uh, Polanski hiding um,
1: the phone. Yeah. And leaning over. The, yeah. Just uh, and actually baby. having,
0: having the actor behind. Uh, oh no. And Bl- uh, yeah. Ruth Gordon was Ruth behind Gordon. the door in that yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. never see her,
1: but yeah, she's on the phone. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's just supposed to make the audience lean. And I got to watch an entire room full of people, uh, squirm because they oh, couldn't cool. tell where where to be afraid of what what part of the okay, frame cool i love that scene
1: uh in in Ruth's baby because ruth gordon is so compelling she goes she she calls um saperstein uh and says like and, and we're not going to pay any of your fancy hollywood prices either <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great line um she's so i love that character so much many cast is one of my favorite characters i feel like i'm always impersonating her whenever i'm writing for some characters anyway <laughs> um but yeah, I think I think that's another thing. That scene um, of Robert Graysmith going down in the basement and getting spooked—it's the same thing. It's like we get too close to the thing, and it's a—it's uh, not fun anymore. It's uh—it's actually frightening. And um, yeah, it's uh—it's weird. We're like, uh, you know, it, th- there is this. This um this thing that speaks to all of us individually of like listening to Colonel Russell Williams' testimony or interrogation, um, it's a beautiful interview. If you haven't seen it, it's three hours, and it seems like it's a guy coming out of the closet, but he's this like um, air force veteran colonel in the Canadian Air Force, um, who's killed multiple women, uh, and it's awful, and he's the worst guy in the world, but to hear him talk, he's like put on their clothes. He's probably, um, you know, uh, trans and then couldn't do that in the air force. And he says like, you know, the first victim, I was walking my dog in the neighborhood and she never blinds down. She was running on the treadmill and immediately I'm like, cool, we got to get blinds for my house because, uh, my fiance can't be, you know, she can't be wearing exercise clothes inside. Like you, you immediately change the way you think about the world because of your neighbors. Um, And statistically, you know, Toski says it in the movie, Mark Ruffalo's character, he's like, guys, how many people have been killed by gun violence in San Francisco? I was like, this guy killed eight people. Like, that happened over the last month or two weeks in San Francisco. Like, um, maybe we should reanalyze kind of how scared we should be about these people that might keep us in our basement, instead worry about someone with a handgun uh, who doesn't like the way that you park.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's... um It's true. I mean, it's all about risk assessment. God, the last year and a half has taught me almost everything about risk assessment is flawed. Uh, Just watching people go out and make mistakes and do things. And I'm sure I have too, but I get to judge everybody else. That's how this works. (laughs) But but, uh, somebody said, I wish I could remember who it was because it's really trenchant and clever. Um, After 9-11, is when you get CSI and Criminal Minds and all of this programming designed to tell you that you should stay home because the world is too scary. And it's always situated in, like not CSI because it was in Vegas, but all the Criminal Minds stuff is set in suburban situations in generic America, telling people that there are monsters next door all the time. Yeah.
1: Oh, what's that one where the guy comes back homeland and it's like, it's it's so toxic and pandering and awful and um, not true. And uh, same thing with Argo, like Argo, I hate it because it was like nothing against the team and nothing against, you know, Alan Arkin. Uh, but the the moral of that story is Muslims are the bad guys and Hollywood saves the day. And it's like, really, that's the wow that we're still and then it wins Best Picture. It's like yeah. I, I feel like those kinds of um, filmmaking speak to. Uh, you know, what the basest desires of humanity is in America. And it can sometimes just
0: be incredibly detestable, just as bad as the problem itself. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of the the media specialty, right? Like we, we speaking as a film critic, not a, a, a news reporter, but we certainly jump on things to make them more vivid than they need to be sometimes. And end up perpetuating whatever the problem is just by saying, pay attention to this. Look, it's here. And that generates the need for more stories and so on and so forth. Yeah. Never ends. It's a feedback loop.
1: Yep. That's exactly right. Echo chamber feedback loop.
0: Yeah. But you get some decent people. I mean, here and there. (laughs) I have to hope. I have to believe. (laughs) I'm trying to, like, I don't know how you get out of it. I don't know how you break things. It's, you know, like Tachi's frustration. He he is chasing one guy who is- terrorizing a city and doing its best to hold San Francisco hostage with the letters and the, and the campaigns. But other people are doing terrible things all around him and he's, and he's getting turned into dirty Harry, right? Like that's yeah. the other thing. that they, That's where the media takes it.
1: Yeah. There is this Jaws problem that comes up with law enforcement where the victims' families come out. We haven't, Wolf is no hollow and they haven't in Jaws. Um, but that bit of like, how come you haven't caught this thing yet? Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult. And you have to kind of, I mean, yeah, it is it is really difficult. Um, I've witnessed it firsthand. There was a, a case that I became fascinated with and befriended the families in Alabama. Um, it was a five-time astronaut that was uh, drunk the second time driving a uh, second DUI and he killed two girls. I know the story. Um, yeah. Jim Halsell is yeah. awful. Um, and it was, it was interesting where it's been five years before the trial where he got sentenced. And he, so he's been out and had five Christmases with his families and the victim's families didn't have that robbed of that. Um, and so the, the victim's families are calling me and calling the district attorney. And they're just like, how do we get this guy in prison? Like, what is going on? Like, why is it taking so long? And, uh, And it's difficult to explain. It's a thousand different legal red tape bureaucratic bullshit that you have to go through. And then the district attorney is getting all this heat from everybody where it's like his elections coming back up. And it's like, I got to get this guy in prison now. And we have to find out how to do it. And it's all very messy. It's never how you think it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, to catch BTK, it took 30 years and it was only because they had DNA evidence and realized that um, they could use that against him because they had so much. Uh, they had so much of his DNA on the crime scenes, and then uh, and then his daughter went to a school and she had a pap smear, and they had saved uh, her DNA and they could track it through there, which is an insane thing. But it's it's never police work. That catches the guy. It's like a a very difficult, heavy thinking that goes into, from from an entire community. I'm glad the internet's around. I think it's going to be much harder to be a serial killer in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious to see what even the next five years brings uh, in terms of advancements and and tracking. And God, now we know where everybody is at all times too. That's going to make things easier to to catch people doing horrible things that don't know to turn off their phones.
1: That's it. Yeah. There's a podcast uh, to live and die in LA. It's amazing. It's Neil Strauss's podcast. But um, one of the things that they did was they got into the the main suspects Google account and that tracks where the where you are basically Mm -hmm. at all times. And so like, although he was saying he was somewhere else, he was right near where the body was found. And it's like, well, there you go. You're like, you're the killer. Um, (laughs) Really interesting.
0: That's amazing. Um, I just I just upgraded my phone this week because I finally had to, and I paired it with my old smartwatch. And the new phone has just enough new tech on it that it just started initiating Google Fit on my watch. And I'm like, oh, I don't I don't exercise that much. I don't need to worry about it. And then it just popped up. You're five eleven and 176 pounds. It's like you're a watch. How do you know this? I don't it knows everything. It's it norm. Shouldn't, it shouldn't, we're going to have to stop killing things. people. I think. Well, I think. I think. I mean, it's what gets the tension out. <laughs> god rest norm mcdonald's soul
1: that amazing bit dude he's unbelievable man he is so good and his entire coverage of the oj simpson trial on saturday night live is amazing basically the jo- the punchline of every time ta- of every joke that he made about oj simpson was that he was absolutely the murderer and it's yeah. it's true it's not you know 30 years before its time but it's true
0: unassailable Yeah, it's um I'm trying to come up with a way to to bring this back to the beta test so we can get out, but we've covered Wolf of Snow Hollow so much that, I mean, it really is the more relevant title, but um, as far as the beta test, what can we talk about without giving anything away?
1: I feel like with Beta Test, we stole so much of the murder narrative structure that Zodiac has, where you open it with a murder, and then you populate the rest of the scenes um, with sporadic murders throughout to keep the audience tense. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of the film, there's a tease that I'm probably going to get stabbed in the neck with a set of scissors. and. Um, that was all Zodiac. That was all us stealing the detective engine and the, um, the tension that David set up or the screenwriter set up for that script. And, um, and yeah, it works. It's, it's, it's odd to say our movie is like an out-and-out, laugh-out-loud comedy, uh, but it still does work to keep the audience at the edge of their seat.
0: Yeah. I and mean, the other thing I thought of while I was watching it was Cure. Was, uh, I yeah, don't, dude. You,
1: you've seen it? Oh, yeah, of I course, fucking yeah. love that movie so much. So basically, the end of Cure is the detective shooting a dude in the face on the ground a whole lot. No spoilers, sorry. <laughs> um, movie came out 30 years ago or whatever. Um, but I love that movie so much. To, to watch somebody purposely dodge getting hypnotized by a bad guy is
0: so fulfilling to watch. It's great. I love that movie so much. Oh, I'm glad I caught that. I mean, I, I felt it. It's just, and it's on, uh, for anybody listening, it has just reemerged. It's on the Criterion channel. Please watch Cure. It was my Halloween recommendation this year because I'm so glad it's back in circulation. Um, yeah, I definitely, oh, I'm so glad I was right about
1: that. Yeah. And he also has a new movie out. It's on Mubi. Um, it's like Wife a, of a spy.
0: That's right. It's a romance, yeah, it's good. right? It's good. So, okay, it's, cool. Uh, World I War II, um, espionage romance thing. I don't want to discuss that any further, but it is out there. Uh,
1: (laughs) But it's so funny. Every time I see a a trailer for any of his work, uh, it says, from the master of J-horror comes this romance film. And it's really great. I love that pivot. I love that somebody, after making movies in the horror genre for many years, it's being celebrated worldwide, is now like, I
0: want to make lovely movies. And that's fine too. Yeah, he's in this, uh, I think I called it a post-genre career at one point, but... That's great. He'll come back and he'll deliver something... It's so horrifying Whoa. that nobody can get out of it. And it, it's going to be great. I'm there for I it. think so, too. I love that. Like, I, I think it, it, it takes that.
1: Somebody leaves the genre for a minute, and then they're like, I'm pissed off at how the genre is being represented. I'm just going to make the best goddamn movie you can imagine. I think it, it speaks to male ego, but that is an ambition that I have of making other lovely movies and then coming back because the kids aren't doing it right.
0: <laughs> I want to see that. I. It's like Bong is going to do another Memories of Murder at some point, and it'll just oh. be... You can't know, wait. Exquisite I, torment. Yeah.
1: And I, I, I haven't been uh, fulfilled by other stuff in the Korean murder genre yet. I, I, I got to see that. They caught the guy. They, they, uh, yes, they caught that yeah. killer.
0: Yeah, they deal with it on the new, on the Criterion edition of, of okay, Memories. Cool. They sort of have to acknowledge that, you know, the, the film's, the ambiguity is gone, but it's still one of the most perfect endings I've ever seen in the yeah. genre.
1: He was in prison, right? They
0: they did he a DNA He was already test in prison for prison. something else. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens.
1: Um, John Douglas says this. I'm sure you know that. But the the three most uh, common ways for a serial killer to retire is uh, they are in prison for something else, uh, suicide, mm-hmm. or lo- lack of libido, which happened with the Golden State
0: Killer. Um, just became he aged out of it, which is yeah. insane. Yeah. It's, again, the psychology of this stuff is, it's absolutely fascinating. You learn so much more about yourself investigating it, and then you never want to open those books again.
1: I think it's really taught me a lot about psychographics and like psychoanalysis of how when you can do a deep dive into a serial killer and you can build a profile about who these dudes are, who they probably are from a crime scene, you can do the same thing with everything else in your life. And I think- watching something like Zodiac and doing investigative research about who this one person possibly could be helped me to build audiences for our films. So it's like with Thunder Road, I was then primed to be like, cool, this movie makes people laugh and cry at the same time. We should be reaching out to adults who like Pixar because they're not going to it for the animation, they're going to it for the heartbreak and the comedy. And like, Mm -hmm. um, it really does create this wedge in your mind that is a consciousness raiser uh, to make you think more about yourself and how we all fit into the world. And it's crazy that it takes the darkest subject in human history uh, to wake people up from it.
0: My thanks to Jim Cummings, whose new movie, The Beta Test, is on VOD right now in the US and Canada. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire Shedden. She knows what she did. You can find Jim on Twitter at Jimmy C. That's me, all one word. And you can find Zodiac on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Netflix, Amazon, and the Criterion Channel, and available on the VOD platform of your choice. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday, in addition to writing far too many words about movies and television. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies, stay safe, wear a mask if you go out, get your shot already. I'll see you next time.